I'm going to start us off by doing something very unexpected and praying. Is that okay? Uh, God, help us this morning to know who you are and to let that infect who we are. Uh, help the words that we listen to and that we speak to be uh, life-giving. Uh, help us to give you honor and glory. Uh, and by doing that, help us to become the people you created us to be. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I'm going to start by reading out of the Bible. Uh, I try to do that so at least something I say is good. I'm going to be reading from Ephesians 2. Um, and I'm just going to start at 1 and read to 10. Uh, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used... To live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He's the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. But our, um, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life. When he raised Christ from the dead, it's only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all the future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us. As shown in all he has done for us, who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do good things uh, that he planned for us long ago. Uh, That last verse is one that I live really closely with. Uh, I mistakenly used it for uh, a message that I gave for my youth group probably six years ago. And I have not been able to leave it. And I've tried. Because who wants to preach on the same verse for six years? Uh, And every time I try to leave it, somebody asks a question. Hey, you said last week... You remember that thing you said, we are God's masterpiece? Can you, t- can you tell me about that again? And it's not just a self-serving uh, kind of egotistical question. Um, it's one that's very real to this generation who feels so dislocated, as Mary said earlier. They feel so um, separate, even though they're surrounded. And even though they're always connected through Facebook and all these things, they feel lonely and they feel insignificant. Um, so I want to do something to start out with. Uh, what do you guys think of the word discipleship? By the way, let me, let me preface this whole thing with, I thrive on interaction. Please feel free to interrupt me at any time uh, because uh, I would rather interact with somebody than just speak to them. Um, So this idea of discipleship, what are we talking about when we talk about discipleship? There's lots of different ideas, right? Just anybody, throw one out. It's a scary word for me. I'm like, what do you mean by discipleship? Scary, and I agree, because some people 
say discipleship and what they really mean is education. Yes, and I have the same response. Pfft, really? Uh, and it, while it does look like education, it does incorporate education. It's so much more than that. It's so rich in depth. Um, and some people would say, well, formation, spiritual formation, that's, that's what discipleship is. But let me just suggest, just for this talk, that we, that we throw out all of our presuppositions about discipleship and move from this idea, and I'm just going to say this just for today, that is discipleship is, is when one person meets another person and makes a change. Okay? One person meets another person and makes a change. Um, and I didn't come up with that. Somebody really smart named Seth Godin came up with that. Um, <clears throat> so that's discipleship. And we're talking about discipling with grace. And as hard of a word as discipleship is, I think grace is infinitely harder. And we get to try to explain that to people using these very, very poor objects as words. Uh, they're symbols of ideas. And so we, we talk about grace, and in, in any of the Bible dictionaries or seminary classes that you go to, what will they say? It's, it's God's unmerited favor, right? Well, that sounds pretty good. But that really falls short of the richness of grace, of what grace really does when it, when it works in someone's life. And it's easy to talk about grace and say grace and really not be infected with the meaning of it and the richness and depth of it. I think even by Paul's time when people were using that, that was a, that was a, a way to greet people. And Paul uses grace and peace to start out most of his epistles, right? Uh, grace, because that was the way the Greeks greeted each other, and peace, shalom, which is the way the people of uh, Israel would greet each other. Uh, and so it's this easy idea to say this word and, and not let it take root in us and not let it really, <clears throat> I want to use that word, infect us like a virus. So I was thinking about this talk and I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about in Discipling with Grace. And just a week ago, uh, sitting in our little youth group and this beautiful girl <clears throat> um, asks me something and let me give you a little background on this girl. She's, she's, she's the girl who shows up. She almost never wears makeup. Uh, she's in the dance squad at her school. One homecoming queen. With no makeup. She's just one of these girls. She gets up in the morning. She puts her hair in a ponytail. No product. And she goes to school. She wears glasses. She comes from this amazing family. Her father um, is one of these guys that I really admire. Uh, I, if, if I grew up and became him, I would just be happy uh, about life. And um, he's got this beautiful family. And she says, I don't, I don't think I understand this idea of grace. I think what I, what I do in life is I just whip myself. I think I beat myself to death all the time. Um, she comes in and often asks questions that are similar to, what, what do I do about my friends? Because my friends aren't what I want them to be. 
I'm summarizing. My friends do this, and I don't want to do that, so I can't hang out with them. And so she vacillates back and forth with this idea of, I'm better than my friends, because I'm not doing all the things that they're doing, and I'm worse than my friends, because I'm lonely, and because I'm so uptight about everything. And so she keeps pinging back and forth with this. And I said, you know, I would, I would love to see what happens when you give yourself grace. And as we unpacked that, and as we started thinking about that, what, what it came down to is she has this amazing father that, father that she just really loves, maybe to a fault. She kind of idolizes her father. And so a lot of what she does is to try to get his approval is to try to measure up to this image that she has of him. And so when she made the homecoming court, she was thrilled and surprised. And she went home, and the first person she wanted to tell was her dad. And he came in, and he was, that's, that's wonderful. That's, that's great. Uh, I'm so proud of you. He said all the right things, and he meant them. And what she heard was something else. What she heard was she shouldn't be there. She shouldn't be in that group. Uh, and because of her relationship with her friends, she felt like, well, I don't understand why somebody would think to put me in, because it, it's voted. It's it's a process of being voted on by peers or being nominated by peers. And so enough people um, nominated her that she was baffled. She didn't know what to think of that. And when they called her name as the, as the queen of the home, I thought her head was going to roll off because she was just so shocked. And I was thinking about that and trying to help her understand what this idea of grace is. And, and if you stay in youth ministry for long enough, you get flashbacks. It's kind of like Wayne's World, you know. Um, and I had one of those flashbacks in that moment about her not understanding what, what the depth of grace is. And I, I don't understand it completely, but I know a little bit about it. Because about eight years ago, I was in a youth ministry position. And uh, this was a, right at the end of May. In January, the January before, I had a, had a review from my boss, my senior pastor. And the review was just stellar. It was stunning. It was, you are exceeding all of our expectations. And uh, I walked out of there giving high fives and people going, yay, Paul, you know, doing the fist pump. And, um, and then we fly, fast forward into May and I just finished this missions trip and I, I come back. Senior pastor calls me in his office. Uh, and I'm expecting to kind of tell him about what happened in the, on the missions trip. And he said, hey, Paul, um, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're heading in two different directions. And I know we talk a lot about grace at this church, but when it comes to your job, it's performance. And if you can't perform to our expectations, you, you've got to make a change. You've got to go. <laughs> uh, really, uh, you know. I didn't know what to think about that. I, I just I, talk about being baffled. I was sitting in in the chair in front of his desk, trying not to move because I thought 
like a deer. If I just don't move, nothing bad will happen. You know, if I just sit here and I'm, I'm schooling my face and just trying not to let panic overtake me because I didn't understand. I didn't understand how just a short while before I could be exceeding expectations and then I wind up here. And I thought to myself, this is just such a sad statement. I know we talk a lot about grace in this church. But when it comes to your job, it's performance. And so we talk about grace and we say it's God's unmerited favor. But I think it's easier to talk about grace from what it's not. From its opposite. Um, the opposite of grace, and you could probably make a lot of cases for a lot of different things, but at least one of them is reciprocity. If grace is God's unmerited favor, the opposite of grace is us trying to do something to measure up, to perform, to get whatever we think we need. Um, and so I, as I had this flashback uh, in the middle of youth group, uh, our youth meeting, I thought about the depth of, of what that would mean for somebody who's 16 years old and had all these outward affirmations about themselves and couldn't accept them and couldn't let that take root in, excuse me, in her life. And so what I told her two things. I said, there's, there's two things that, that I think you're living out of that, that are defeating grace that are making it so you can accept this life of grace. And the first is, is performance. Um, it's uh, Performance is such a just awful mindset. And it goes against what we, what we believe, uh, what we say we believe about the Bible. You know, in Romans 6, um, Paul says we're saved by grace. It's not through our own works. And that's what I just read in, in uh, Ephesians. Uh, it's, it's said so many times through the New Testament, you can't deny it. We are saved by grace, and it's not through what we do. But that doesn't stop us from trying. And as I sat there thinking about this girl, I thought about myself, and I thought about where I was at that time. And, you know, I would, I would go and lead a small group, or I'd go and lead a... Uh, a talk like this, or I'd, I'd you know, uh, preach somewhere, and I would leave grace aside. And I've talked with a lot of youth pastors who do exactly the same thing because we go in acting like it's our performance that matters, right? Our authority comes from how well we make analogies and connect people to Scripture. It's performance-based. Do you guys get that? It's the opposite of grace. So when I go in and I try to prepare and prepare and prepare and, and make myself be ready for something, uh, there's nothing wrong with being prepared. But when I do it so that it instills this kind of support for myself, this authority in myself, it's the opposite. It's the opposite of grace. And so when I left that, that position, they fired me, by the way. It was... It was great. Uh, and I mean that, like, seriously. It was one of those clarifying moments um, where I realized what I really needed to do and what really energized me, what made me 
the person God created me to be. Um, so when I left there, I knew that wherever I wound up after that, I had to be in a place where I could practice grace in a way like that. Uh, and that was it, so awful to hear the grace is not performance and you've got to perform, but so great to leave that position and go, okay, I, I need to know. I need to know on the front end before I commit to a place, am I going to be able to receive grace? Um, and to do that, that means I'm going to have to change the way I do th- things. I'm going to have to be redeemed from my self-will and from my self-promotion and trying to make myself look good. And so I started meeting with people and um, having people pray for me and uh, moving into that. And I met a pastor and we talked a long time before he thought enough about me to, to offer me a position uh, working with him. And I really centered around this idea of, of being able to give and receive grace. Um, because what I'd worked from before was this authority, and the authority was how clever I could be. How, how, how many great books I could read and get other people to read and be clever about them. Uh, and if you go to any Panera in any part of the nation, you'll see it. Uh, you'll go there at 7 o'clock in the morning, and you'll see a group gather around studying a book and somebody doing that. And I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying, uh, for me, that was death. That, that was not grace. Um, so what this looks like as I flesh it out is, is going in and letting my experience of accepting grace, the grace of Christ, be my authority. That's my authority. You could make a case for the Bible as the authority because we're reading the Bible. But discipleship is more about reading the Bible, right? It's more about it's more than just education. It's meeting another person and making a change. And there's a, a, a level of... <laughs> when I say that to people about discipleship, the first thing that people say is, well, who am I to make a change in somebody else's life, right? Uh, and I loved what... Uh, what was said back here, uh, Ray said, don't be afraid of, of wanting glory. That's what we're created for. I'm not saying we're doing, going into a, uh, an arrogant mode of self-justification uh, or, or self-glorification, but I think that's what I'm created for. And I think if you're in youth ministry, you're probably created for the same thing. This isn't self-glorification. This is letting somebody see the grace that was given to you and extending it to them. I can't, I can't really describe that any better. But I know when it happens. And when I see that, that's when God's Spirit comes in and does something that I, I can only take part in. I can't direct it. Uh, I, just, I have to be, uh, like Paul says... Uh, Hey, I, I planted the seed and Apollos watered it. But God made it grow. And so that's a real important thing for me now. Um, and I talked to, to this girl about that. And I said, you know, I'd love to see you get to the place where you didn't feel like you had to perform. Uh, somebody at somewhere linked grace with beauty. Right, girls? Oh, she's, she's so great elegant. Uh, 
there's some beauty that comes about in that. And this girl sitting in my youth talk, you know, youth group, she's that kind of beauty. No makeup, no primping, no frills. She just had that beauty. And it came from who she was, not from who she was trying to be. Not from performing, none of that. So that's the first thing we talked about. And the second thing we talked about was value. Specifically, where does value come from? Um, I read this book. I'm a reader. Uh, by a guy named Yvonne Chouinard. You probably don't know the name, but you probably know him for what he does. He's the person who founded Patagonia. Um, Patagonia is a pioneering company. Uh, they started a lot of things. Flex time, that started with them. Uh, daycares in the workplace, that started with them. He never wanted to be a, a businessman, though. And so the book is about, it's called Let My People Go Surfing. I thought it was supposed to be some play on Moses. Uh, you know, let my people go surfing. But it, there's not a comma in there. It's just let my people go surfing. It has nothing to do with Moses. Um, <clears throat> but what he says is, I never wanted to be a businessman. I just wanted to live by some values that were really important to me. And his values are um, being in nature, having adventures, and taking care of that and sustaining it. And that's what the company tries to do. But I, I wondered about that as I read it. What would happen if, if we lived by a certain set of values? And in the church, we're supposed to do that, right? I mean, we're supposed to, supposed to live by a certain set of values. Um, my values try to go back to the values I learned growing up. Having friends who really think I have cool hair and cool clothes and say witty things. Probably a lot of this comes from trying to impress my own father, right? Uh, all of those values are, are values that are outside of me. And they're things that I can't control. I can't control how much I impress someone. I just can't do it. I love what Mary said. Uh, so much of this generation is, is putting on a facade. They're putting on a front. And then they feel like they have to measure up to that front. Well, that's the, I mean, maybe it's not a generational thing, or maybe I'm a lot younger in, in my mind than I should be. Uh, because I, I do that, and I've done it all my life. I have all this practice of trying to be something and then try to measure up to it. But all those things are external. And so the only way I would feel good about my values is if somebody came up and patted me on the back and said, nice job, Paul. Great. Um, while I was going through all this turmoil in that former job, I had a friend come to me, and he, and he's, he would say things like, well, what do you, what do you really want to do uh, if you could do anything? And he was trying to get at this source of values, the source of the values. Because if all of them are external, at some point, you're going to not like yourself very much because you're not going to be very impressive to some people. Even if you're doing a great job, right? And in youth ministry, often we do amazing, amazing work. And nobody sees it. And you probably won't see the fruit of it for another four or five years. Uh, they're like time bombs. And we plant the time bomb and it's going to go off sometime. But it may be in college or it may be when somebody has children or something like that. 
Um, but if nobody sees those things, they can't come and pat us on the back and say, good job. So if our values come from other people or things that are outside of ourselves, we're stuck. But what happens if they come from inside, if they come from who we really are? And not just who we really are, really are but who we're created to be. And so that's the source of value. And so when I read this, this one little snippet of this passage in Ephesians, it says, we are God's masterpiece. And then it goes on and it says something more. We are God's masterpiece because we're created in Christ. Because of our relationship with Christ. So we are God's masterpiece created in Christ for good works that he prepared a long time ago. I can't think of a better way of living out grace than that. And I know I'm finite and I'm limited, but every time I read that passage, I see something. I see, yes, just like Ray said, we're created to live into God's glory to represent it, to be it, to be the image of that. And he created us that way in Christ. And when we see that, it's internal. It's part of who God created us to be and it's all different for everyone. The way I'll do that, it will be different from the way you do it, even though we do youth ministry. And so... I get to this place talking with this beautiful young girl. And she's she they've all heard this verse so many times they're just like, Oh, here we go again. You know, and I I, I just if you if you learn anything from this talk, repeat what you say a lot until everybody's sick of it, because that's that's how they really learn it. Um, so I start telling her about this and she goes, Yeah, 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 no. And I was like, Okay, what are those specific things about you? If you really get into discipleship, you're going to find out these very specific things about the people you're working with. You don't even have to call into action the things that you think should change. All you have to do is point to the truth you see in them. And for me, what I do, that's the moment of grace. The moment of grace is when I see somebody else and the calling out that truth, speaking those words of life, saying, this is who I think you are in Christ, frees them to live in grace. So when I talk about discipling in grace, that's what we want to offer, but we can't lead people where we haven't been ourselves. Right? We can't lead somebody down a road that we've been unable to or unwilling to go. And so it's important. Uh, that we embrace those things for ourselves, that we don't live in this performance world where we feel like we always have to measure up and impress people. We don't, we don't need to live in this place where all of our value comes outside of us, but it comes from inside, from knowing Christ and from knowing what he created in us and what he calls to to help us to live that kind of life where we're energized. and We don't have to put up a front because we're just being honest with ourselves when we go through life. We don't have to, 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 to go in and promote ourselves because of who we are naturally. 
Uh, for me, that's, that's what happens when we disciple using grace. It's what we do in our lives and what we extend and open up to other people. How am I doing on time? Um, yeah, like 25 minutes. Questions? Interaction? I have a question. So, we moving on to the initial question about discipleship. Uh, one of the struggles I have with it is, right, I think Brooks, you kind of said it kind of makes you cringe a little bit. Because mm-hmm. I feel like, um, uh, um, like, I feel a kind of fear of control. Like, it's my job to change this person. Mm. Like, I've got to make them a better Christian. I have yeah. to make them a more fruitful follower of Christ. And and I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of kind of schools of discipleship that say that. Mm-hmm. There's one um, there's one book I started reading, and it opens by you know, this kind of like older, wiser Christian man saying to the younger Christian man, like, if you'll if you'll do the things I tell you to do, I will show you how to be a Christian man. And uh, I don't know, there's just something about that that that. Uh, oh crap! I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know, I, and it's kind of, it's this uh, tension between, oh well, yeah, like we really, we do need to like guide people, and you know, there are things to be taught, there are things to be educated on, um, there are complications to have, and like they're, the essence of the gospel, the essence of Christianity is our lack of control, right. and, and a shift to the control of the Holy Spirit. I can. Um, let me summarize for this. What you're saying is uh, a lot of the paradigm we find ourselves is the pressure to make a difference in somebody uh, that makes them look more Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think I think that's a very real pressure. I think I, I've seen it in my own life. Uh, enough and in other people's in the churches enough um, there's a tension because of what we're called to be we're called to be nothing and yet as an incarnational ministry we're, we're called to be everything so when I think about this um, and it, it really goes back to Paul and Apollos watering and planting and God growing uh, what I like to think about this, and what I, what I the terminolo- terminology I use is, is the process and the outcomes. We cannot control the outcomes. We can't, uh, unless we're doing behavior modification, right? Um, what we can do, the best we can hope for, is to be a part of the process of what God does. Um, and so, when I think about this, I think about Paul in Philippians two. He writes this beautiful uh, hymn. Where he says, um, he says, you know, Jesus came and he, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, and he lowered himself. And the word is kenosis; it's emptying yourself. Uh, and he says, I I think we all should be like Jesus, and we should empty ourselves and be nothing, so that we can be something. Uh, and it's this beautiful passage. It's really, I mean, it's it's poetic in the way it was originally written. Um, and so. I'm holding on to that. And I'm going, yes, empty ourselves. I, you know, I'm channeling Jeremy Camp, you know, that empty me song. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hold this. And that's a hard 
thing, right, to empty ourselves because I'm selfish and I really want it to be about me. Uh, so I'm, I'm clinging to that like somebody who uh, has fallen off the edge of a cliff and I've got one root in my hand and I, that's the only thing keeping me from falling. Um, <laughs> and then you flip over two pages into Philippians 4 and Paul goes, hey, I got a good idea. If you want to be a, a, a Christian, you want to be a really good Christian, just copy me. copy me. <laughs> and I used to read that and I think, God, oh, that's so arrogant. How could, he, how could he say that? That's what comes from knowing who you are in Christ. It's not an arrogant statement. Uh, it's a statement about grace and Christ. Where I can honestly say there are some things that have happened to me that I can't explain that I've been changed into and it's God's glory. I know it's not me. And surprisingly enough, it's from emptying myself that that's, that's the source of it. It's from being able to empty myself enough where, where God can do those things. So I definitely feel the pressure of what Cameron has said of uh, I want you to make a change. And it often happens more with leadership over me than the people who meet with me. Now the people who meet with me, they meet with me because... They're looking for something, right? And the people who will meet with you, uh, teens, parents, um, they're there for a reason. I try not to assume what that reason is. I try not to go in front-loaded. I wait. Often they're talking, and I'm praying. And I'm saying, God, what are you doing in this person's life? What's happening? What would you say to this person? Uh, that gets me outside of me trying to control the outcomes so that I can enter into the process. It's, it's a microcosm of empty me, be that person. Um, did that answer your, your question? I mean, does that flesh it out a little bit? Probably didn't answer it, but it spoke to it. So, Someone else? I don't know anything about sports, so don't ask a sports question. Uh, apparently not. I'm being kicked out. They've revoked my uh, citizenship. Uh. Right, so I'll ask another question. Sorry. <laughs> you said something about just identifying the truth in a person. Yeah. Okay. Can you uh, talk about in practical terms what that looks like? And, you know, yeah. What, what kinds of truths? Yeah. Uh, the question is, when you when you come to a place where you're identifying truths about someone and getting into their identity in Christ, how do you do that and what's that look like? So, um, I hope I hope you're not going to release this to parents of my youth ministry because I, I like to talk about people um, and real life situations. We had this guy in our youth group um, he, was, he was probably one of the biggest bullies I've, I've ever seen. Some of the people who were his friends are going to need serious therapy. Uh, one night he was at our house and he was telling me, bragging about this trip that he had taken with his friends to the lake. And uh, he said, man, there was this guy and he was such a goob and uh, he was getting on my nerves so I locked him in this doggy crate. 
and I got a coat hanger and wired it shut where he couldn't get out because he couldn't reach his fingers out. And then I threw a blanket over it because he was crying and said, hope you don't suffocate. And we walked in the other room. So there's a picture of, this guy's a bully, right? Um, and everybody knew it. Everybody in the group knew it because they had been on the receiving end of his kind of love. Um, we're sitting around in this group. We're pretty tight. We're a pretty close group. Uh, we're talking about what it means to live into your identity in Christ. And I'm trying to move on to something else, and they're pulling me back. And, and this guy says, uh, I know I'm a bully. And I've done some really awful things to people. And uh, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't know another way to live life. Uh, I, I feel like I just have to make an impression on somebody. I have, to, I have to do something where I know they respond to me. And this is the only way I know how to do it. And so when I do these things, I, I'm just trying to get a response. I'm just trying to get someone to laugh or to hate me or to love me. Uh, it doesn't matter to me as long as I get a response because then I know I was here. I don't think he's the only person who feels like that. I don't think he's the only adolescent who feels like that, but I don't think he's the only person. I think there are lots of people who feel that way. And so in this very transparent moment, he pours out his heart and he, and he says, I, I, I know I do this, but I don't know what to do instead. Um... And one of my youth leaders has this just amazing insight. And she says, I think God created you with this special understanding of what can hurt people. If there's a spiritual gift of understanding pain and how it's caused, I think you have it. But I think what's happened is you've learned to use it in a wrong way. And I wonder what's going to happen, or what could happen, if a year from now you have a completely different set of friends because you're their defender, and you know what's going to hurt them, and you go ahead of them to protect them, instead of being the person who's the antagonist against them. And so, very short little happening built from two years of us seeing it and watching it and becoming a, such a part of his life that we had seen it enough where it was obvious and then to be able to speak truth back into that. I wonder what would happen if God redeemed that and made you like this. Six months later, he and a, a girl that he had such a huge crush on who totally was oblivious of it, uh, start showing up at our house. And this girl had, had had some problems and she'd been ostracized by a lot of her friends. And uh, they come over one night and they're talking about things and, and she said, hey, thanks for, um, for what you did today. What, what happened today? 
I'm asking the question, hey, what'd you do? Well, you know, there's these guys and they always make fun of her and they call her all these names and all this kind of stuff. And I knew they did. And I just didn't want her to feel like I was doing that or that, uh, that I thought that was okay. So uh, she was walking by in the hall today in school and uh, me and two or three of those other guys were there and they, they said something to her. And, and uh, I said, hey, come over here, come over here. And he calls to the girl and brings her over and he says, hey, we're doing something this weekend, right? We're, we're, we're going to hang out this weekend, right? And uh, she goes, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And he does it right in front of the group. And he texts her five minutes later when he gets to class and he says, I just want you to know that I care about you and that I'm not with those guys. I don't think it was prophetic. I don't think what my youth leader said was prophetic. I think it was just calling out truth. That this is who I see you to be, and I think it's who God created you to be. Test that against your life. Test that against what you see going on. And if it's true, if it sounds true to you, feels true, make a change. And start living into that person who God created you to be, instead of this other person who's obviously not. Mm. into the process. Right. Discipleship is, is a long-term commitment, but we don't get to determine the length of it. Right. Our job is to be faithful, mm-hmm. and to be available, and to be there. Mm-hmm. And that moment, two years later, three years later, that, that comes up, that's the moment that we get to speak that word. Mm-hmm. That may be the only word we get to speak. No, that's right. That's a, that's a great reminder to me and probably all of us, Danny. Um, and I'm going to rephrase uh, just so it gets on the recording. Um, so much of our time really is spent developing those kinds of relationships. Uh, and it looks like we're goofing off. <laughs> How many hours of Halo have I played uh, just to get to know somebody? Or how many times have I sat down with my guitar and taught somebody G chord uh, just just so I can spend time with them, and that's that's a that's a ministry of affinity, where we work from what they love and what's unique in all of us to bring us together, so that we have that time together um, to get to know them and see these things that God is already doing, that God knew way you know uh, back in in the beginning of time uh, that this is. This is what's going to be cool about this person. This is what's going to be really awesome, epic about this person. And if somebody could just point to that, somebody could just recognize it and point, it might give them the courage to live that way. And it takes time. It just takes time. Huh? I was having a conversation on the, on the drive down here with a fellow youth pastor. We were talking about the discipleship process, which is mm-hmm. near and dear to both of our hearts. In your ministry experience or time, has there ever come a time to shake the dust off your feet? <laughs> yes. Uh, the question is, uh, in discipleship, is there ever a time to quit? Is there ever a time to give up, to, to say, uh, this is not going to work or it's not working? And the answer, I think, is yes. Um, 
And here's my answer. When you find out who you are, if you're, doing, if you're teaching this, you should be doing it, right? If you're going to teach this, you need to find out who you are in Christ and live from it. So, if you're living from it, it starts becoming very, uh, very apparent what you do well, what you're called to do, and what you really don't do well at. The things that don't give you life and the things that do give you life. Um, when you do the things that don't give you life, it's not that you're not being a servant and, and doing what needs to be done. But when you commit to those things instead of the things that are your calling, that are the, that are the sustaining points of your Christian identity, your identity in Christ, you're sinning against yourself. Because you're sinning against that person God created you to be. If you find yourself in that situation a lot, you really need to consider your placement. Um, give you a good example. Uh, church I served with, uh, some of you don't know this, but I have two degrees in music. Uh, I was supposed to be a rock star. Didn't work out. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a big part of my life, and it's something I still enjoy. Uh, and it's a great thing for youth ministry because we can always bring out the acoustic and kumbaya it up. Um, but I served a church, and, and I served there originally as a youth pastor, and the church was going through some transitions and doing things like that. And, and what, they, what they found was uh, the worship person left, and, and I kind of filled in. Um, and this is another Paul statement. Uh, it's something I'm trained at and, and good at, and I love it. I love leading worship. It's not my calling. So what they wanted me to do was to stop doing youth ministry and start doing education and worship. Love doing it. Love being able to help out the church in that way. It's not my calling. And I had to say, I can't. I can't do that. Um, it, it goes against who God created me to be. I can't do it. I love that illustration but more specifically as it relates to students. Mm -hmm. Okay. Not particularly you. So let's say two-year bully. Yep. <laughs> Should I have given up the week before that? And maybe give up isn't the right word. Yeah. But yeah. Um, invest somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. invest yeah. Uh, using the, the gifts and talents and abilities, you know. Yeah. Maybe it's a talent thing, you know. Where do we push the talents to? Um. I have an unlimited discipleship paradigm. If somebody comes to me and asks asks for help, I will help them. Um, yes. I create boundaries. I'm married. I've got two girls. Love spending time with them. So there are boundaries. But I will meet with you. It may be next week or the week after, but I will meet with you as long as somebody wants to do it. Um, if I'm the only one initiating all that, I'll, I'll probably do that four or five times. Uh, if it's just me, uh, then I'll probably, I'll probably go four or five times and then I'll take a pause. Week or two. If no response happens, call up. How's it going? Just checking on you. How are things going? Usually what I get is they're going great. Okay, good to know. Just checking on you. God bless. Does that, does that specifically get more into what you're saying? Yeah. And there's ones that I want to give up on. <laughs> you know, the bully. 
oh, I wanted, it was painful. Pain, if you're empathetic at all, watching that happen is painful. And, and, and knowing that you can't come in and fix it and control it is painful. Um, and I would have loved to have given up in my flesh way before then. I'm glad I didn't. As you see it, where, how do you differentiate between fixing it and speaking truth into the situation? Okay, that's that's where the process and the outcomes come about. Uh, that's the reason I use that wording. Um, we can't fix anything. It's, it's not our job to fix things. Um, and uh, Romans 8 is a great little passage about this because it talks about condemnation and conviction. Uh, Anything that condemns is not God. So, uh, if I say something or do something that is for an effect, um, I'm trying to I'm trying to go a place where I shouldn't go. Uh, so, what I try to do is just be faithful. Uh, be faithful in in what I can do to be a part of that process instead of trying to do the outcomes. It's incredibly hard. <laughs> I blow it a lot. Uh, so let me go ahead and say that. But um, for anybody who cares about a teenager, you, <laughs> I see you hurting. If you would stop using that hammer to hit yourself on the head, that would be great. Um, but we it, And it's hard, but we have to detach enough where we let them do it. And that's really what makes them stronger later in life, to know that they did it. And so while I'm doing this, while I'm detaching and, and saying, Okay, uh, I think that it, I think it might be better if you stopped hitting yourself in the head. Uh, there's a, an implicit message that we can do instead of an explicit message of pointing to the truth, of pointing to things, and that's that's why I really work more in the realm of I see this in you. Do you see that too? Instead of hey, you're messing up here. Can you stop uh, to to try to call into truth? It's more of a gestalt if you use therape- therapeutic language. Um, it's more of a gestalt way, but to point to the truth and let them rise up to that rather than me, you know, go the other route. Did that answer your question? Yeah. Uh, anyone else? I think we've got a couple of minutes. <coughs> to put not therapeutic language on, but more leadership, what's running through my brain is, is a mm-hmm. couple of things that you have said has cast vision before people. Mm. When, when a bully is coming to the point of realizing and somebody says, what if this happens down the road, that, that person put vision out in front of, out in front of the bully and, and sh- help them hopefully open their eyes to see what could be. Right. And, and it seems to me um, that the part of, big part of discipleship is painting a preferred picture of a future mm. and, and a godly picture of a future the way we're intended to be. Right. Right. Uh, what Dave just said is a, it's a very kingdom perspective, and it, it was talking about the story earlier about how we cast a vision. Uh, and it, this is such an overused and I think misquoted verse, but without vision, people perish, right? Um, and I think we, we look at a perishing generation. And uh, part of what we do in youth ministry is to, is to project the possibilities of living as this person God created us to be. Uh, it can be used in leadership, it can be used in uh, almost any way we do it. I mean, the, the secular world has embraced life coaching uh, as something that executives should do to, to better themselves, but it really calls to that person who's inside 
that when, maybe we're a little bit too afraid to get out, or maybe we just don't see the option. So that's a that's a great point, Dave. Just to reinforce one of your points too, like in just in our conversations, I think for you a lot of discipleship is defined by identifying people's gifts and casting vision, like you said. And I, I was uh, leading a Bible study on Romans 12 this year, mm. you know, and you get to, to Romans 12 where it goes from all the theology to the auditory, the practical application, and you know, right off the bat, one of the very first things that Paul talks about is gifts, right? Um, which that really uh, struck me is. Um, that self-awareness of gifts and the use of gifts is such an instrumental part of discipleship. Yeah. Use, um, use 12, 1 and 2, Romans 12, 1 and 2 uh, as your diagnostic for this. Uh, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices, uh, holy and pleasing to God. Uh, don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Hey guys, sit on this. I've called you into this vision of, of what it is. Sit on it. Think about it. Pray about it. And if it's coming from inside, listen to it. And uh, here's, the, here's the best part of it. Uh, be transformed by uh, the renewing of your mind. And then you will know God's good and pleasing and perfect will. I, I could have just used that one phrase. Because if you're doing this, if you're presenting your body as a living sacrifice and you're listening to God instead of the world to have Him transform your mind instead of trying to front everything else, then when you do that, when you're faithful to the process that God uses, then you'll know that God's will is good for you and it's pleasing and it's perfect. And that's my filter for for that uh, when, I, when I'm saying, hey, you know, I might be wrong. I'm, I'm calling you into this vision and I, I, I don't know. It's just what I see. Think about it. Marinate on it. Try it out. And if it resonates with you, think about doing it. And, and what will happen is you'll see it affirmed through realizing God's will. So, love the, love the Romans 12, 1 and 2. The rest of the chapter is great too. But uh, For diagnostic, for, for discipleship, I use that one a lot. You go back and do this. You go back and think about this. And let's see how it goes.